0: What's up, everybody? Nate Lurie back with more of We're the Inspiration. With some dark humor and brutal honesty, we're exploring the absurdity and the normalcy of living with disabilities. Stories are told on this show, and everyone's is different. One by one, we're telling as many as we can, while bringing you the most entertaining podcast about disabilities you'll ever hear. It's been a while since I had anybody new on the show, but this week I have a friend of mine from the Spina Bifida Conferences they used to have, and, you know, sometimes I have people on just because I want to talk to them. Sometimes I have people on and I know exactly what I want to talk to them about. And this is kind of the latter. But first, Brian Johnson, thank you for being the inspiration for this week's show, man.
1: Thanks for having me on. How you doing? I'm doing
0: good. So let's kind of start at the beginning for us, I guess. I mentioned that we were both at the... Spine a bit for the conferences that they used to have. What are some of your memories from those conferences? Because I know you and I weren't hanging out directly a lot, but we knew each other, obviously.
1: Oh, gosh. There are a lot of great memories from those conferences. You know, being able to meet people from all over the country, form friendships that I could realize that I'm not alone in this. Because even where I grew up in western Washington State, I grew up about an hour north of Seattle, so there was a Spina Bifida Association chapter when I was younger, but there weren't really any kids in the town where I was living that had Spina Bifida. So it was just great at those conferences to be able to see people and talk and have fun and not really miss those things.
0: Washington state had a chapter when you were younger, but basically they might as well not have because you were pretty much the only kid.
1: From what I can remember my mom telling me there were maybe 20 kids. Maybe it's just been so long since my mom and I had talked about it, but yeah, it seemed like from what she was telling me that, you know, it eventually fell through because there just wasn't enough involvement from people in the community, even though I've learned since then that there are obviously a lot of kids in the Seattle area who are living with disabilities, just not necessarily spina bifida. I went to a camp growing up, and it was a camp for kids with disabilities of any kind. And, you know, there were a lot of kids at that camp. There were like, I would say, a hundred from all over the state and you know those were a lot of fun we had camp at an old fort that had been just turned into a national park yeah we all sleep in the barracks and thankfully we didn't have a drill sergeant waking us up at four in the morning and doing bed inspections and yeah
0: know. that was for the other group of campers right yeah <laughs> <laughs> i went to camp for people with disabilities for a couple summers. And before that I went to a day camp. I think I was the only person in a wheelchair in the whole camp most of the time. And there's a drastic difference between those two types of camps where Mm -hmm. at a regular day camp, I say regular because I mean, you know, not meant for people with disabilities or not made for them. They sort of wonder what kids with disabilities can do. And then you get into Mm -hmm. camps that are designed for people with disabilities and everything's kind of laid out already. And it's a very strange contrast. And I hadn't really thought about that until right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess the disabled camps are in a way sort of like the spina bifida conferences were. There were no counselors or anything like that, but there were activities already set up that Mm -hmm. all you had to do was go to them, basically. Yeah. But speaking of the conferences themselves, I know from talking to a lot of people, not even just on this show, but the experience of being at those conferences, a lot of people were they're doing things that they normally wouldn't do at home. And I don't want to bury the lead here, but you and I agreed that we were going to talk about something that you've been talking about anyway, which is your sobriety. And one of the things that struck me is that a lot of people at those conferences, they would kind of do a lot of drinking when they wouldn't drink anywhere else? Is that where that started for you or?
1: No, it's not. After I turned 21 and I started going to conferences by myself, to be honest, I was still at the point in my drinking where I was still discovering my own limits. I think it was in Louisville where I had too much to drink and I remember getting on a bus to go back to the hotel, bus started moving and the world just like swam. And I was like, whoa, holy cow, this is not a good feeling. What the hell? I backed off for the rest of the conference. My drinking didn't start getting out of hand until the last conference, but that was still at the point where I was able to hide it from everybody. So nobody knew. But in 2013, when my ex-wife and I moved into a house together, that's when it really just started to take off. Like, I started out with having one beer once or twice a week to two to three to then a couple one more day a week and one more day a week, one more day a week until I was drinking two or three every day. And then it just progressed to four a day, five a day, a six pack a day.
0: I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but like you talked about at conference, maybe establishing your limits. And when you moved into that house with the now ex-wife, at first was it kind of the same thing? Like I can handle one beer a day, let's go to two. I can handle two beers a day, let's go to three kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I think, honestly, that's how it started. Oh, okay, yeah, I can handle this. Let's go more. What I didn't realize is, by that point, drinking every day, alcoholism had already gotten me. I didn't admit that I was an alcoholic until 2014, when I was 29, 30. Before that, I could have one, and just be done. I'd go with my parents to parties, and I'd be able to have just one or two. But by about June of 2014, when I would start drinking, I could not stop myself. The only thing that would stop me was passing out. And it just kept on like that until 2018, when My ex-wife was finally just like, you know what, I can't do this anymore. By that time, I had told her, I don't even know how many times, that I wanted to quit. Half the time, just to get her off my back. But the other half of the time, I would sincerely mean it. I really want to stop this. I realize I have to stop this, but I was never able to. Frankly, because I was too comfortable. Uh, My ex's name, her name is Cassie. I convinced myself that I wasn't going to lose her. So I don't think I really saw the need to quit. I'd just lay off and not drink for a month. That would kind of get her off my case. Once I was confident that she was off my case, then I would just start right back in with beer and then test the boundaries. Okay, can I go to the hard stuff now? Because beer is really not doing it for me. We'd go to the store and she'd be like, no hard stuff. And I'd be like, well, okay, fine. And so, you know, I just buy like a huge case of beer. Maybe a week or two later, go back to the store and... I would basically bully her into letting me get the hard stuff. I didn't yell at her in the middle of the store or anything, but I'd go to the liquor aisle and I'd get it. And I'd be like, I'm getting this. I honestly don't think she knew what to do. She would let me at first, but it got to the point where she would start standing up to me and I'm really ashamed to say that I would just cuss her out, take my car keys and just go to the store. She didn't tell anybody about it for five years. I'm not really sure why she didn't tell anybody else about it and just stage a full-on intervention. Um, I think she just didn't know how to help me. She wanted to help me, but maybe she was embarrassed. Maybe she felt like she failed as a wife, which is completely wrong. She was a fantastic wife. Things weren't perfect, and there were things that I needed from her at certain points in our relationship that... She would be like, I can't deal with this. Back in 2011, I was having pretty much chronic kidney infections. I finally got to the point where it was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm not dealing with this anymore because I'd have to go in every couple of months, I think, to get stent replacements in my right kidney. It got to the point, I think, in 2012 where I was like, you know what? Screw this. I don't want to keep doing this. I went to, I believe it was Harborview. I had a surgery. It started out as an exploratory surgery because they couldn't tell just from imaging scans what the heck was going on. So they basically cut me open, and they were like, ah, there's the problem. They found a blood vessel blocking my ureter. Yeah. Yeah. They got it fixed, and pretty much right after that surgery, I was hooked on oxycodone. I had been drinking alcohol pretty heavily by that point already. I thankfully didn't do much mixing of the alcohol and the oxycodone, but as I started getting better and I started tapering off the oxys, I would start mixing it with alcohol. And to be completely honest, I was on the oxycodone until the prescription ran out. And at that point, I don't know for sure whether my parents realized at that point, oh, crap, he's got a problem. But after that surgery, after I recovered my ex and I moved from Everett in Western Washington, where we'd been living for about a year, to Ellensburg, where she's from. It just started to snowball. By the time my parents got me in 2019, got me out of the house, they found me with two of those huge one and three-quarter liter bottles of vodka. One of them was completely gone, and the second one was half gone, and that was in four days. I lost my phone at some point. When I got home from the store to um, get those bottles of booze, I had, I guess, dropped my phone on the front porch, And so nobody had heard from me for four days. Kathy, my girlfriend now, we were just friends back then. She was like, you know, I haven't heard from Brian in four days. She called my mother. My parents were, I think, on vacation. And I'm not sure whether they cut the vacation short or whether they just decided to make a detour through Ellensburg. But either way, they came to the house, the door was locked, but they had a key, so they let themselves in, and there I was on the couch, that big empty bottle on the floor next to me, and literally my hand on the second bottle chugging it to my lips when they walked in. I was so messed up that I'm not sure what they said but i'm fairly sure that my dad was the first one in the door and i'm pretty sure he said something like brian what the hell are you doing i said something probably to the effect of leave me alone it had to have been something like that because i know i crawled to my room i might have tried walking but I was so drunk that I just fell over and crawled to my room and shut the door, screaming at them to get out of here and leave me alone. So they just sat there for I don't even know how long. Finally, at some point after the sun had gone down, they finally got me out of my bedroom, got a bag packed, And took me back to their house. And they're like, you're not going to die on us. They didn't say this, but it was kind of one of those things like, we're the ones who are supposed to die on you, not the other way around.
0: Nobody wants to hear that, but yeah.
1: Yeah. They um, took me to their house. Eventually, they got all my stuff out of that house brought some of it over to their place you know like my dresser my bed was completely trashed because i had been laying in it and let's say not having the best continents
0: we'll leave it like that (laughs) yeah yeah go on
1: they put the house up for sale I had to start going through paperwork that I really hadn't given a crap about for five years. There was a lot of important stuff that I wasn't dealing with. I literally had to relearn what they had already taught me. Probably the hardest moment for me during that time was at one point I was having trouble figuring out some paperwork, and my mom, she just looked at me, and she was like, have you forgotten everything we've ever taught you? I had been living my life like, yeah, I had forgotten everything they'd ever taught me. I wasn't taking care of my health. I wasn't taking care of my hygiene. I wasn't taking care of medical bills when they would come through because nobody can figure out my health insurance.
0: That's another (laughs) show, but go on.
1: (laughs) I had to go through all of that paperwork. And eventually I think I'd been living with my parents for maybe about a month. My mom was like, okay, now you're going to start going to meetings. She basically found a guide of, AA meetings she was like okay look through this find some that are close by that are either tonight or tomorrow night and so I found one in my hometown the next night I think and so she took me I went in and at that point I was going because she was pushing me in I'd say the first two or three meetings, I really didn't feel like I wanted to be there. At around the fourth meeting, basically when I had been sober long enough, I started to realize when I would actually listen to people talk and not turn on Charlie Brown's parents hearing everybody talk, or, or, or you know, I'm just sitting here because I have to. When I actually listened to people talk, it was like, wow, these people have gone through maybe not exactly what I've gone through because I never heard disability brought up. And from the people that I was meeting, it was never apparent that any of them were disabled. Except for actually, I take that back. There was one guy at a meeting a couple of months in who was disabled. He was there because... He was the recovering alcoholic. He's the only other disabled person that I've met. As you can imagine, I started paying very close attention when he would start talking because it was like there's somebody else that's even more like me than all these other people. You
0: related um, to him more. Yeah. Why, especially after a few meetings? Did you still not necessarily relate to the other stories. They might not be disabled. They obviously have different stories than you do, but they're there for the same reason that you are at the meetings.
1: To so, put it bluntly, yeah, they all had something in common that I didn't have yet until several meetings in. Mm-hmm. They wanted to stop drinking. Those first few meetings that I went to, I still didn't want to stop.
0: which i think is common
1: yeah it is pretty common once i decided that i wanted to stop i started listening to the same and they were literally the same stories that people had been telling i realized these people and i have a lot in common the depression the feelings of hopelessness the feeling of powerlessness That's one of the cornerstones of AA, is admitting that we as alcoholics and addicts are powerless over alcohol. That was something for me at the beginning. I didn't want to admit that. It's just a drink. I've got a brain. I've got power over it. I can decide not to have it. That's total hooey. I obviously can decide not to have it. I'm actually at hundred and eight days sober right now, I can decide not to have it. Sure. But once I take a drink, even if it's just a sip, I am no longer in control. I can no longer decide, Oh, that was a bad idea. I got to stop a little background. I live with my sister and um, my niece. And um, my sister's boyfriend, I have been for the last almost two years. My niece was at the house when I had my last relapse. Oh, boy. And she only just turned eight a couple of days ago. Maybe it would have been one thing if she wasn't home, but I really don't think so. I think if she wasn't home, I would have just been like well oh my god what if she was home right i bought a fifth of vodka and i went through the entire thing in four hours before i passed out i guess i was cussing at my bedroom window telling nobody in particular to shut up that obviously had my niece terrified my sister found my phone found my wallet took my debit card out of my wallet and to be honest, she still has it and I'm okay with that. It does kind of bother me at times. feels like being treated like a child, but to be completely honest, I was acting like one. Sure. So I don't know how long it's going to be before she either asked me, do you want your debit card back? Or I feel comfortable asking her, hey, you know, it's been this many days. You think it would be okay if I had my debit card back now? I'm not having any cravings to drink. And I have no desire to repeat what happened with the last relapse. It was so incredibly not worth it. (laughs) You know, we were in the middle of a move. We moved a few hundred feet. (laughs) literally up the highway where we live like two houses down (laughs) literally one One. literally one house down Uh i was stressed out about the move
0: you're stressed out about a move next door
1: yeah i really have no idea why because you know now that it's done we're in the new place And especially considering that, yeah, it's literally one freaking house down from our old place. I think I was really blowing things out of proportion when we were still living in the old house, even after I found out, hey, uh, Brian, you're stressing out about this move. Come out to the front yard. See that house right (laughs) down there next door? That's where we're freaking going to be. Stop (laughs) stressing about it.
0: It sort of goes back, I think, to being too comfortable, right? Like you were comfortable with the drinking and you were comfortable in that one house. You didn't even want to go next door.
1: Yeah, I was comfortable in my sister's old place. Really loved it. There was a pond on the land. And that's where I got a lot of really great pictures. To be completely honest, I think that's just kind of grasping at reasons to be upset about the move. Yeah, Our living situation now is much better because back at the old place, my sister was just renting. This place that we're in now, she bought it.
0: She was renting a house and then she bought the one next door? The Why didn't the she just buy the was, first house?
1: The owners were asking a ridiculous I see. amount of money.
0: I see. You've given a lot of examples of reasons that people might stop, but I don't think you really said what the final straw for you was as far as at least the first time you stopped drinking. Was it your wife leaving you? Was it relating to the person in the wheelchair at the meetings? Was it your parents finding you? To be
1: completely honest, I think it was kind of a culmination. I lost my wife. I lost my house. I had lost my car even before I lost the house. I didn't necessarily lose the car. I gave up my driving privileges voluntarily. My parents came over after my second DUI. They were like, we don't want you driving until you get your act together. So you want us to take the car until you show us that you can get and stay sober and be responsible? At that point, to be completely honest, I was wanting to stop, but I was just feeling completely hopeless. You know, I just felt like there was no way I could stop. So if I couldn't stop drinking, well, okay, just take away my car so that I'm much less of a public danger. I voluntarily was like, you know what? Take the car. And (laughs) it was a really awesome car. I came to kind of regret asking them to take it because... (laughs) I really miss driving, and I still do, especially the longer I stay sober. It's like I would really like to get back to it. Funny story, my sister owns the car. Huh. I'm not kidding. She, owns, she owns, owns, owns the house, she owns the
0: car, she owns everything.
1: She owns the house, she owns my car, and so, yeah, I had to see it every day I've been here. Oh, man, you just can't drive it. So at first it was like, oh, my God, this is totally going to suck. Having to look at the car. At first it was because of, to be honest, the memories of the DUIs. My second DUI, I put the thing in the ditch. At first it was just the really really horrible bad memories of that that i would think of when i looked at the car Mm -hmm. and now when i look at it i just remember all the fun because i've taken that car down to the oregon coast i actually drove the entire washington coast down to midway between washington and california Mm -hmm. so the middle of oregon the oregon coast yeah there are a lot of fun memories in that car not just the few duis and so you know when i look at it now thankfully the fun that i can think of and it's like well you know i really want that back but i'm still not all that sure that i'm ready to have that back
0: and you know you started this conversation by saying You were testing your limits with certain things. And it seems like you still know your limits in certain areas. And it's because of things you've done or things that you know that maybe you can't handle. I've never been a big drinker, but I realize what a vicious cycle it is for some people. Like, the things that happen to you as a result of the drinking, your wife leaving and losing the house, losing your driving privileges, that would for a lot of people, just make things worse all over again. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like you're rising above it, or at least trying to.
1: I am trying to. I can't take credit for it being my idea all along. I was forced into it until (laughs) I wanted it for myself. Right. But now I am firmly in the wanting it for myself camp. I do not ever, ever want to have another drink. Some days it's easy for me to say that and to firmly believe it. Other days I'm feeling like crap. Things are happening that I just don't want to deal with. Yeah. Like two or three days ago, I think a good friend of mine and I think ours from... Conferences.
0: I know who you're gonna mention, Mr. Eric Swanson. I can't say I knew him very well, but you know, I would talk to him at every conference and again I didn't get to know him very well. I think that has to do at least in part with being in different parts of the world, kinda of like you and me. But mm-hmm. he always seemed like a really, really nice dude. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and I didn't mean to interrupt you talking about him, but, you know, for me, it seemed like a very short time between finding out he was sick, finding out, oh, wow, what he actually has is cancer.
1: I remember him mentioning something about it about a year and a half ago when he first found out he had it, but last I knew, I thought it was in remission. I had no idea that it had come back, much less that it had killed him. When I found out, I started slipping really quick. I'm holding off tears now, fairly, but I wasn't when I found out. Even though I certainly can't claim to be one of his best friends, when we did talk about once a week, it seemed like, he was always just so friendly and so funny and so supportive when he first found out that I was going through this alcoholism and addiction.
0: Not for nothing, man. But if you were talking to him once a week, you were pretty good friends, I would say.
1: Yeah. So I just reached out to a few of our other mutual friends. I was just like, I just heard about Eric's death and really hit me i really need help right now because i'm about to lose it and drown my sorrows i don't have a way to get to town which is about five miles away but if i've learned anything in my struggle with alcoholism it's that we alcoholics and addicts find a way if we want something bad enough we'll find a way yeah i reached out to a couple of our mutual friends eventually they both got back to me and they were like talk to me brian what's going on you're right eric was a great guy and it really sucks that he's gone but he would not want you to drown your sorrows he would not want you to relapse because he was gone he wants you to fight even harder now that he's gone. Will Dickey was like, when you're done talking with me, get out, take some pictures. I kind of got outside for a little while after the sun had gone down and the main heat of the day was gone. And yeah, I ended up taking some pictures outside and inside. That got me through that, got it pushed to the back of my mind. I can't say it got my mind off it because I've been constantly thinking about it. Will and Michelle are right. I got to keep fighting and I will keep fighting. It was a really rough couple of hours for me and usually cravings for me last a minute. But for me, I was still really wanting a drink for a couple of hours and the only thing stopping me was not wanting my sister to notice any of her alcohol going missing and the fact that I couldn't get down to town to get some for myself but eventually the cravings did pass and I haven't had any since that day because I know that it's not what Eric would want and it's not what any of my other friends who have passed away or my grandparents and my grand uncle who have passed away over the years would want, you know.
0: It's not what I anybody would want that's still here either, man. You want you healthy. Yeah.
1: yeah. Today is kind of a bittersweet day because I'm actually having a pretty good day But there's just still The fact that Eric is gone This is going to sound weird But kind of making me feel guilty for having a good day Otherwise
0: Well he wouldn't want you to feel like that man
1: I know that man It's like what the heck Brian And you know darn well that Eric would not want you to feel like that Nobody else who's alive wants to feeling like that. Right. And I'm really glad that you reached out to me to um, do this.
0: You know, it's one of those things where it could have gone either way. Like, I knew just through Facebook posts, like, X amount of days sober, and, you know, this happened to me or whatever. And,. I knew one of two things would happen if I asked you if you wanted to do this. One, you'd be all for it, which you were, or like you'd think I was trying to exploit you in some way. You know what I mean?
1: I know what you mean, but at the same time, what the hell, mate?
0: <laughs> I'm glad you didn't feel that way, but like not that we're not friends, but we mostly just like laugh at each other's Facebook posts when we post jokes and stuff like that. And we don't talk a lot otherwise, right? So, yeah, I just wondered based on the fact that, yeah, I know you, but I don't know you really well, whether you mm-hmm. want to talk about this with me. You know what I mean? Yeah, And I'm glad you decided to do it. This was a much more educational than entertaining episode of the podcast. <laughs> I want to thank Brian for agreeing to do it. Because, again... It could have gone either way with him, but
1: yeah, sorry. I'm boring.
0: <laughs> no, this was not boring, man. As a matter of fact, you know, every once in a while I want to check in on you and have you back on here to see how you're doing. Cause okay. The stories themselves were kind of somber, but you told them well, I think there would be a, An interesting follow-up episode at some point. Maybe when you get to like a year. Okay. How about that? Okay? That sounds good. Cool. So I want to thank everybody else for listening. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join our Discord server. Until next week, this is Nate Lurie saying you don't always have to do a lot to inspire others.